This episode is brought to you by Bluesound, makers of the Node X network streamer. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darker Audio Podcast. But this episode is very different to what we do usually. Yes, Srijan Ibayan is once again guesting with us, but this podcast was originally recorded as a video, and you can go and watch it on YouTube right now. Just search for Darko Audio on YouTube, and you will find this podcast episode there. And if you want to watch Srijan and I tackle four news items, which is what we're talking about in this podcast, you can do that over on YouTube. But if you prefer to listen to a podcast and not watch it, and I totally understand it if you do, then you can listen to the audio portion of that podcast right here, right now. Right then, Srijan, today we're going to talk about four news items that have cropped up on our collective radars for the past, what, three or four weeks. And I believe you're going to kick us off with something from Fio. Am I right? Yes, you are. And the reason that I was interested in the brand, because unlike you, I've never really bought anything from them or even reviewed anything, hmm. is that uh, I think you ran a press release on their R7, which yes. is a streamer, server, headphone amp, preamp, Wi-Fi, wireless, it's the works for $6.99. And when I read the press release, I was wondering whether the USB-C output could be used to feed a USB DAC, because mm -hmm. nowhere in their documents did it say that. So I took a risk, ordered one. It did everything that I wished for, plus more. I bought a second one. I have two now. <laughs> You're a lunatic. <laughs> yes. But I was so happy that when I saw the press release for the FT3 headphone, that I just took another chance and I bought one as well. Mm. And on the day that I bought it, or possibly a day before, they released a 32 ohm version. And the original right. that they had out is the 350 ohm version, which now comes mm -hmm. in black and white. Mm -hmm. The 32 ohm version only comes in black. And I remember you and I had to talk about which one to get. Right, because and, we both wanted to get a pair, right? Right. And, and to because... be honest, I never have compared two headphones that were otherwise identical except for the impedance. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea whether low or high impedance sounds better if you have an amplifier that is happy with both. Mm -hmm. Now, on FIO Germany's website, they had a sonic description that suggested that the 350 ohm is more resolved and possibly more lit up in the treble, mm -hmm. and the 32 ohm was possibly more bassy and sort of more lifted up in the bass. At least that's how I read it. That's how I read it too, yep, yep. And figuring that I never really cottoned to the Sennheiser HD800, I found them too bright. And that's mm. a high impedance 300 ohm headphone. I ordered the 32 ohm. And so now we should talk about what it actually is. So it's a headphone. It sells for 299 euros in black. The just available white version, I believe, is either 329 or 349. It's slightly more mm. expensive. It's an over ear, so not an on ear. It could be an on ear if you have really big ears. The opening on the inside is round, not oval, mm -hmm. and it just surrounds my pink bits. But if I was a hobbit or Spock, <laughs> okay. some of that that ring of the of the pillow would actually touch my ears. Then it would be a little bit more of an on ear. It's open backed. Can I hold them up? Because Please. I've got mine. I have I have a pair I made earlier. Um, yeah. So that yeah, you can see maybe there if I hold this to camera that the opening isn't crazy wide and you're right like i've only worn these for literally 10 minutes and they just about cover the ears but i quite like that because any bigger and i would feel that they were too bulky on the outside maybe i don't know anyway sorry well you, here uh, you can see on this finale that i'm wearing i think they're called the d8000 i'm going to turn are, to the yes. side yeah mm -hmm. i mean they're massive by mm -hmm. comparison uh the feel are quite light i find them mm -hmm. very comfortable 
In fact, I find them comfortable enough to take them to bed. You know, lean back with a pillow, headphones jacked into the little R7, and listen for like one or two hours. And should I fall asleep, I'm not really worried. They don't fall mm -hmm. off. Um, they're not super tight with the clamping force either, are they? I don't they're, find them super tight at all. They're a little bit loose in, in, in some respects, which is, again, fine if you're not moving around too much. What I also really liked is the the accessory kit that comes with it. You get a really yes. nice full leather hard case. The headphone cable comes standard terminated with a 4.4 mil balanced plug. Then they have an XLR4 adapter that slips right onto that. So now you have two balanced versions, small and big. And then you can unscrew the 4.4 mil and you can put a 3.5 mil in instead and then mm -hmm. they also have a 6.3 mil adapter that the 3.5 mil plugs in. And so you have four different terminations, all off the same one meter cable. Uh, the terminations. Oh, hang, hang on though, hang on a second. Because you're, you're saying one meter cable, and because I've got the 350 ohm version, not the 32. And this uh, is definitely. You've got the three meter. This is definitely longer than a meter, which is great because my headphone amp is sort of over here behind my couch. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's the, I mean, it won't focus on that, but this, that's the uh, th three and a half mil termination that I've, yeah, got on there at the moment. But yeah, it's great to have all the little adapters. I think the screw-on thing is, it might be unique to Fio, maybe, I'm not sure. Have you seen it before, that kind of thing? I haven't seen it before, but my understanding is that there is a company that makes these connectors and they have shown up somewhere else before. So okay. they are not exclusive okay. to Fio, but Fio adopted them. Fabrilos or Fabrilius, that's apparently the name of the company that makes them. Okay. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So before I bought them, but after I had already bought the R7, I thought this R7 is so accomplished and it's so affordable for what it is. Who are Fio? Mm -hmm. Because I didn't really know that much about them. To me, they were just another brand from China like Astel and Kern or K. They're from Korea. Aston and Kern are from Korea. Correct. But then I think we have Aon or Own. We have Kayan, mm. Sengran, Denifrips, Gustard, Ibasso, Holo, Kinky, Musician, Kulos, Sandy, Shanling, Topping, on and on and on. They're all Chinese brands. And yes, I don't know that much about any of them, except maybe mm. Denifrips, because I reviewed them a lot. And so I found out that they go back to 2006. The mm -hmm. owner is called James Chung or Chung. And he was an engineer at Oppo. And he had a project for a speaker dock for a Maisu MP3 player that at the time was popular. And this mm -hmm. goes back to the iPod days where everybody had a dock for yes. the iPod with little speakers built in. Mm -hmm. Turns out that Oppo wasn't interested. He had already put in a lot of R&D and spent money. So he decided to pursue it himself, this project. And mm -hmm. he and some fellow engineers from Oppo created their own company, which was FIO. They started in 2007. Apparently, mm -hmm. they, sold, they sold tens of thousands of these. Really? Yeah. Fast forward to 2023, and I'm watching a FIO YouTube video on their new factory. And now I have to read, because I didn't remember it all. They're claiming more than 300 employees. 15,000 square meters of a new industrial park mm -hmm. with a 160 square meter demo room for all of their products, a 30 square meter fully treated listening room. They have already more than 300 awards over the years that they've been in business. They have their own <clears throat> anechoic chamber, their own R&D and marketing teams. They have four two-way assembly lines and now get this, their annual production volume is 2 million units. Are you serious? Two million. Whoa. That's current. And they have uh -huh. expansion plans and room for it already set up for another two million. Mm -hmm. Now, th these could be tiny little IEMs. These could be bigger units, but still mm. between two to four million units. That is a really large company. They are much bigger than I knew just because I had never looked into field. So they've been turning up to CanJams this year with everything. 
So, you know, like when, when somebody says, well, we're just going to take everything and they've got a whole range of different IEMs, portable players, obviously the R7, this is their first, not this, sorry, that is their first uh, full-size headphone, I believe. And they're on the up and up. And I think pers- from a personal point of view, because as I said to you off air before we started recording, I've been buying their stuff for my own personal edification for years because I like the look of the the stuff that they make, like they did a, a collaboration IM with Critical about two years ago. I bought those. I, I think I did make a short video featuring them whilst I was first in Portugal a couple of years ago. And then I bought a pair of earbuds. So not in-ears, but earbuds that just rest in the kind of lower part of the ear. And they're obviously open to the street. And I, I it's this is going to sound ridiculous, but... I bought them about a year ago and I only used them for the first time yesterday, <laughs> which is stupid. But I went up the street to get a coffee and they were just a joy to listen to. They're not the most resolving things in, in the universe, but they're super comfortable. You can hear your surroundings more. And I thought this company doesn't seem to be, it's not firing blanks, is it? I mean, they really are, I guess, to use another cliche, they're kicking goals seem, seemingly every time. My understanding is that these headphones, the FT3 we are talking about, were mm. in R&D for one and a half years. And when you have right. 300 employees, we probably reckon that they have 10 to 15 people in the engineering department. That's mm-hmm. a lot of man hours sunk into this headphone. Now, right. something I wanted to bring up mm-hmm. is my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that a low impedance headphone will have thicker wiring for the voice coil. So that takes oh. that takes fewer turns, fewer and, turns. I would okay, okay. And, and, I always thought it was more turns, but okay, all right, okay. And again, I said my understanding. I could be wrong, yeah. but the high impedance mm. headphone tends to have thinner voice call wiring, Sorry, more yes. turns. More, yes, yes. Supposedly yes. that creates better rejection of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, they also claim more resolution. So a lot mm-hmm. of studio headphones that have amplifiers that can swing high voltages, they are all high impedance. 250 Mm -hmm. ohms, 300 ohms. But in the consumer headphone market, especially with portables that are run off batteries that can't really swing high voltages, they have current, but not high voltage, low Mm -hmm. impedance headphones are preferred. So when I looked at the Sennheiser online, 300 ohms for the HD 806, but they have a high-end IEM called the IE900, 18 Mm -hmm. ohms. So portable, low impedance, stationary at home head fire with lots of power you're just as well off with high impedance headphones i simply don't know whether there is a sonic advantage either which way and i also found out that fio did not just change the voice coil on the 32 ohm version but they also changed the material of the membrane right it's not the same so if we were to compare the two headphones side by side on a powerful amplifier and they sounded the same, we wouldn't know whether that's the adjustment that they made with the headphone driver. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't sound the same, we couldn't point at the impedance alone because they changed more than one thing. So I'm still completely up in the air as to what to expect from high and low impedance headphones if I had two different models and I had mm-hmm. an amplifier with plenty of power that didn't care either which way, which one would sound better? And if they sounded different, which way? Would they sound different? I have no idea. So I actually phoned a friend on this topic about an hour ago. So I'm, I'm buddies with uh, Cameron from Golden Sound. He runs a YouTube channel called Golden mm-hmm. Sound. And he's what I call a headphone expert. He's very much into measurements and things like that. So I asked him, like, given the choice, Cameron, would you go for a 32 ohm or a 350 ohm? And he said, all other things being equal, go for the higher impedance because it requires less current, as you just said, from your headphone amp. So your headphone amp must be reasonably capable in terms of voltage, but it doesn't need to have a lot of current delivery. So I've got a, I've got his response on my on my phone here. Um, this is, a, by the way, this is a new Sony um, Xperia 1.5. And I'm mentioning that for a reason because this, this phone is going to feature a couple of times in this podcast for Jean. Anyway, um, Cameron says, all things being equal, higher impedance is a good thing. It means you've got a higher damping factor from the amp. And high impedance headphones 
slash load pulls less current than a low impedance one when fed the same voltage, which makes the amp's job easier. But he says there are two challenges. I'll try and paraphrase a little bit. Firstly, the sensitivity. And I did look on the FT3 website, the FIO FT3 webpage. I couldn't find any mention or any specificity of what the sensitivity is of either version of these headphones. I did. Of course. Oh, you did? Okay. There's a 2 okay. dB difference, and surprisingly, the high impedance one is more sensitive. I didn't expect that. Right, okay. So, and he says, secondly, if the impedance has changed, the driver itself is different, which we've already covered. We know the driver is different in these. So it's not actually the same headphone, which is, you know, so to call it the FT3, well, I guess they couldn't call it FT3 Mark II, so whatever. Um so Cameron says, you know, you kind of have to try both to work out which one is to your preference. But he says high impedance headphones need to be turned up more on the amp as they need more voltage. But actually the amp is having an easier time of it because it's not having to push so much current into the headphone, right? Now, this is a phone. This is one of the, the reason I got this phone is one of the last with a headphone socket on it. Oh. One of the very last, right? A this dinosaur. Is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a dinosaur phone, but it's actually it's incredibly expensive. This is my treat to myself this year, and I took a punt on this. It's an Amazon punt, so if I really hate it, it can go back. But would you expect this headphone socket on this phone to be able to reasonably well drive a high-impedance headphone like this? From what I know, which is not very much on this particular subject, no, I wouldn't. Okay, so surprisingly, it does. We're right at the top of the volume level, so 90% and plus. But I've just sat there listening to something going, yeah, this, is, this sounds pretty good. And it's from a phone. So this is not, this is not going to have a, a huge amount of output power, not at all, because phones generally don't. I mean, this is like a low-powered, I guess you'd call it a low-powered portable player, if anything. But I was really surprised. So my first impression of the headphone socket on this phone, which I was expecting to be a bit shit, actually, is not the case. So it surprised me on two levels. It sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty clean. And with it can drive these 350-ohm headphones. So I'll just put the phone down because I'm coming back to this phone in, in a bit. But um, yeah, I was super surprised. And I also used the Shanling M. Is it the M3 Ultra that we reviewed on the podcast, right? Correct. I used that in balance mode with these mm -hmm. Fio. Also pretty good. Only halfway up the volume. I was just going to ask you that because on mine... That channeling, mm. when when it gets loud, sits mm. at 40 out of 100 in the low gain mode. I think I was about the same, which is it's surprising, isn't it? Because you would expect the three instinctively the 350 ohm to want more juice, right? But it doesn't seem to be the case. Unless your loud and my loud are not matched. <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe my loud is a, with headphones is a little bit louder. But what I was talking to Cameron about before was... It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when we think of, you know, can our amp drive our speakers? The first thing we look at isn't the impedance necessarily. It's the sensitivity, isn't it? And yet in the headphone world, the sensitivity, you have really, I mean, as you found, you really have to dig for, whereas the impedance is the, the more prominent specification, maybe because it swings more wildly, you know, all the way from like four ohms for very sensitive IEMs but they are, sorry, that's not necessarily because they are sensitive, but they generally are, to, you know, ball breaker headphones. Like, I don't know what, because I don't have any. You, you, I mean, is this far, like, of super high impedance? I don't know. No, I believe it's around 32 ohms. It's just very oh. inefficient. Okay, okay. So that's... But I believe that, that the okay. highest impedance I've ever read about on a headphone was 600, but I don't remember okay. which headphone that was. Right. So the next thing we're going to talk about is a new DAC and headphone amplifier, which I believe is about three weeks old. It comes from the UK's iFi, and it's called the Neo iDSD2. And I have to sort of, like, I've got to double check that because iFi have a whole range of products and they have some pretty similar names and wacky names and they all sort of cross over into each other. But this is one of those headphone amp DACs, I think it's like their mid-tier product where you can stand it upright and you can lay it flat, mm -hmm. right? It is dual mono. It's balanced front to back. 
and if I call that pure wave, I'm looking at my notes here. I'm sorry, there's just so much here to go through. We get five watts of output power into 32 ohms, which is, I think is substantial. We don't know what the distortion profile is for that, but we assume it's pretty good. 650 milliwatts into 600 ohms, which is what you know we just mentioned. There's a little tiny screen on it, which I say is retina grade. Yeah. I don't know what retina grade means. I mean, I find are full of these things in their press releases, like these unsubstantiated things, or they kind of try and sub-brand things, which I got to say, sorry, I fight, it bugs me. Just tell me what it is. Tell me exactly. Don't rename it, please. Um, but it's a two-inch screen. Then apparently the DAC is burr brown, but to pull the best from that DAC, they've got some kind of XMOS microcontroller, I don't know what kind of communication goes on between the DAC chip and that microcontroller, but according to the press materials, Sajan, the XMOS chip pulls the best performance possible from the DAC circuit. So I'm not going to argue with that. And then that DAC does PCM out the wazoo. It does DSD out the wazoo. But in typical iFi fashion, the the PCM in, well, the incoming PCM signals and the incoming DSD signals are routed through the DAC on their own sort of independent and different pathways. And then we've got a femto clock inside, which I guess is, makes it buzzword compliant, but also interesting on the back. And you don't see this very often at this price point because this DAC is about 700 quid or 800 quid. There's a, a BNC socket so you can connect an external clock, which I want to talk about maybe in a future episode, not this one, definitely not. And then we've also got on the back the three standard wide inputs, USB, coaxial, and Toslink, right? Now, all that out of the way, that is not the star of this show. So what iFi are making a big noise about, and as well they should, I guess, really, is that this is the world's first DAC with a Bluetooth receiver in it that is capable of playing catch on streams encoded with Qualcomm's Aptex lossless. So this is effectively a lossless Bluetooth DAC, right? But I guess many people would think this is the sort of the holy grail of Bluetooth. I guess a few years ago, I would have said the same because LDAC is lossy, Aptex HD is lossy, Aptex is lossy, AAC is lossy, SBC is lossy, and some of those lesser known, there's a couple of Chinese codecs as well. They're all lossy. They all discard some of the, I guess, less important or less audible musical information in a way of compressing the data down to fit it down the pipe. And what Qualcomm have done, I think they developed this a few years ago. They, they announced it a few years ago. They developed a codec that can travel over an existing Bluetooth connection that allows passage for essentially lossless CD quality, not high res. Where this gets blurry is that an iFi are guilty of this themselves. They'll make a Bluetooth DAC and they'll put a little high res compliant yellow sticker on the front of the box. Yes, that DAC with the Bluetooth input can play that high-res file, but it will still throw shit away before it gets sent from the phone to the Bluetooth DAC. But this one, this Neo IDSD2, no, you can send lossless Bluetooth from your phone to this DAC, right? Can I ask something? It's Please do, Shoshana, because, I'm gonna... <laughs> because I'm not a Wi-Fi guy, because my wife and I get headaches. But why would you want a high, a, a non-lossy, a lossless Bluetooth connection if you could use Wi-Fi and you would it's... not have to go yes. through a telephone? Right. Yes. I mean, this is this is my question as well. Okay, so I see Bluetooth very much as an outdoor thing, right? I use Bluetooth with Bluetooth headphones outside of the house. Inside of the house, if I'm going to use my phone to instig instigate a stream, I'm going to use Chromecast or Rune or Squeezebox or anything that routes the signal through my Wi-Fi network or my Ethernet network, right? I don't... If I had one of these Neo IDSD 2 DACs here, I don't think I would ever use its, its Aptex lossless... Um, input right because it's just why why wouldn't i just connect a network streamer to the dac because the the dac itself is not a portable dac it needs mains power exactly. so it has to be pl plugged into the wall so it's a home audio device right but the thing is there's a big catch to all of this is that in order to get aptex lossless into that dac 
you can't use any phone. You can't just pick up your existing phone. Oh no, you need a phone that features Qualcomm's Snapdragon sound circuitry. Not just Snapdragon sound though, Sajan, Snapdragon sound with Aptex lossless. And you can go to their website and you can search for different devices, right? Now I said this phone was gonna appear a couple of times. So this Sony Xperia, I'm talking to camera here, Sony Xperia 1 Mark V, this does Snapdragon sound with Aptex lossless according to the spec sheet. I haven't tried it because I don't have any DAC that can catch these things. And as we know, the only one in the world is this new iFi, right? But you essentially need to have whatever codec you're streaming with Bluetooth, you need to have it supported by the receiver, which is often called the sync, and then the transmitter. So even if you're doing normal Aptex, which is a, a lossy compression algorithm, or you're using Sony's LDAC, both devices need to support that codec. It's always been like this with Bluetooth. It's never, it hasn't changed. Can I ask a question? So, absolutely. When we are talking lossy, what are we talking? Mm. If CD, oh, if CD quality is 1411 kilobits per second, mm. and then we have MP3 down at 320, and we have it even mm. lower at 256, what do we mean when we say lossy Bluetooth transmission? So AAC, which is the only codec inside an iPhone or an iPad, the only one, that tops out at 256. <laughs> but we, ha we have to be careful here, though, because... As far as I know, a 256 kilobits per second AAC file can sound as good as MP3 at 320, subjectively speaking, right? But then you've got Aptex, I think that's around 300 and something, maybe Aptex HD is 500 and something. Now, LDAC is a bit different, and I'll explain this a little bit more because it relates to Aptex losses as well. LDAC, if it's got a perfect connection between source and sync, we get 990. Okay. Now, many people think, oh, 990 is enough to carry a flak across there. But the thing is, the flak generally has a variable bit rate. I'm not sure why LDAC can't manage a lossless kind of transmission, but it can't. It just can't do it. And so people have to accept that and also accept that I don't know exactly why, but it can't. Whereas Aptex lossless, I think his quote it is traveling at 1200. I, again, I don't know how that's possible across the Bluetooth invisible wireless tunnel. But anyway, LDAC operates at 990, but let's say you walk into, I don't know, a shopping mall, there's lots of phones around in people's pockets, it becomes more Bluetooth congested, then LDAC will drop down to 660 to maintain the connection so you don't get glitches or pops or just to keep the music flowing so the music doesn't stop. And if that congestion gets really bad, it drops down to 330 kilobits per second. So you got three tiers, right? No, now, will, it, will it tell you that it's doing that anyway? Aha. Okay, so no. All your phone will tell you, and this is just Android phones, right? Because there's no LDAC in an iPhone. The phone will tell you that LDAC is being used, mm -hmm. and that's it. You, you won't have a clue if it's dropped down. I've never noticed an audible jump when I've been outside with a, a pair of headphones, Bluetooth paired over LDAC. So... A lot of this is semantics or just arguing for the sake of it or discussing just the, the yeah, just the kind of the nitty gritty of it, whether it impacts what we hear, probably not so much. People do like to argue that because the street is noisy, you can't hear the difference between, say, high res and a, a lossy compressed file. I would argue on a really nice portable player and a nice pair of earphones, you can, but generally through Bluetooth headphones that have noise compression algorithms sort of scrunch through them, those differentials become somehow diminished. I don't know why, for me anyway. But the thing is, is that Aptex lossless, this is, this is the real kicker. So it only is lossless in ideal conditions. Mm -hmm. Now this doesn't affect the iFi DAC because at home you're always gonna be ideal conditions, unless you've got I don't know, five kids all running around with phones in their pockets. And maybe that will cause it to uh, drop down a level because that's what it's designed to do. Like LDAC, if the, the connection between source and sync isn't optimal, the connection will automatically dropped, drop. And if it drops, it goes to lossy levels. It can drop twice, I think, just like LDAC. So you only get lossless in ideal conditions. 
Now, as we've said, at home, you're probably going to use your network to stream. So I just think having a lossless DAC. That's not portable. Yes, yeah. Yeah, not portable. But like, so at home, it, it, I, I never use Bluetooth at home. Not ever, me personally. But out in the street, I use it loads. So if there were a headphone that did Aptex lossless, I might be more interested in that. And I didn't know this until I started Googling this this morning, actually, is that the new Bose Quiet Comfort Ultra headphones, I think are the first headphones, sorry, no, second headphones in the world to support Aptex lossless. But again, you need a phone like this that also transmits it. So it's one of those weird situations. It reminds me a bit of MQA where you need all the right hardware bits in play to make it work. And then what's the payoff? Is the payoff worth it? I don't know. At home, it might be. In the street, it also might be. But I, I personally, I think that the quality of the drivers, the DSP, the amps, the DACs inside the headphone are going to affect what we hear far more than whether we're listening to 990 kilobits per second or 1200 kilobits per second. I, it's a bit like fussing at the edges too much for me. I yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about this because I like to see technology progress. And I, I, I like it when idealists are satisfied with tech because I think the number one pain point for most idealists is that Bluetooth is generally, apart from this this edge case stuff, is lossy. I think when Bluetooth, if Bluetooth becomes universally lossless, I think we'll see a, a radical shift in the headphone market. More idealists will adopt Bluetooth headphones because... They do lossless. I'm guessing there. I don't know. But it's it's one of those kind of weird things that we don't know what is going to happen with it. It could just disappear because there's all this work going on with ultra wideband that I think Apple will probably implement in a, in a product soon. I'm guessing here. I don't know. How would I know? I don't know anybody at Apple. But the thing is, is that Aptex, Aptex lossless is only relevant to a very narrow range of Android phones. It's not in the iPhone. It's not in the iPad not in MacBooks. And in fact, we're probably never going to see it in those products because Apple and Qualcomm, who developed Aptex, have been duking it out in the courts over various issues for the last maybe seven or eight years. So they are, they are not on good terms. So I just don't think we're going to see it. And if you can't bring in the iPhone market, I think you're kind of, you're always going to be in a niche, best case scenario, I think. So unless Apple do something radical that then Android manufacturers can essentially copy or adopt, I don't know how far this Aptex lossless thing is going to go. I really don't. I want it to because, yeah, I want people to be happy and to have their lossless connections when they want them, but I don't know. But either way, maybe iFi deserve a little bit of kudos for being the first to give, you know, Aptex lossless a try. If it gets widely embraced, they have the credit for, you know, having spearheaded the movement. If it peters out in the sand, they took a risk and... Right. I, I don't know, you know, what financially they're having to pay Qualcomm to license this thing or whoever provides them with the chips that I've got no idea. It is good that they're trying this. Yes, you're right. But it kind of reminds me of a Rocky Mountain Audio Festival I think it was 2015 or 16 when MyTech were in the lobby with their Brooklyn Bridge DAC and it had, I think it was the first DAC to have MQA support. And everyone was, well, mo no, not everyone. A lot of people were like, ooh, you know, this is going to be the next big thing. And um, so Michal from MyTech was very front foot with that. And I think it helped him sell a lot of units in the, in the early stages. I think it's a good marketing, um, I don't want to say trick because it's not a Tool. trick tool yes to pull in people to buy your product i think it's smart marketing on, on behalf of iFi. as for its kind of broader utility i have my doubts but i don't know I, i'm i'm on the am i on the fence i don't know i'm probably more down on it than i am pro it but i don't know any questions Sujan? <laughs> not really the only thing i will say is that uh i actually own the bigger version right it's called the iFi Pro IDSD Signature, which mm -hmm. is a DAC slash headphone amp slash fully balanced preamp. And it's mm -hmm. sitting on my desktop right now. In fact, mm -hmm. I need that to listen to these. 
Okay. And I'm super punchy pleased with it. Right. It's not super expensive, but it's very, very good. And it has a feature that it can upsample all PCM to DSD 1024. Mm -hmm. And ah. I have not seen any mention in this current IDSD 2 because it can process DSD 512 and it yes. can process PCM up to 768. Yes. So I believe that the DAC would be capable, but I don't know whether they have the software built in to do like on the fly resampling of PCM to DSD. I didn't see it mentioned anywhere, which would be another niche feature. It would. I, I think at this price point, they're probably not, not going to want to cannibalize the higher price point items. I wouldn't if I, if I were them. Yeah. But you know, iFi is a really, it's a, to me, it's a bit like Fio, mm -hmm. me personally, because I end up buying, I bought the Go Blue. I bought a 4.4 mil to twin XLR adapter recently. I, I bought their Zen Phono stage a couple of years ago. It's another company whose gear I buy bits and pieces of just to fill in blanks sometimes that I need at home because they are always developing this widget, that dongle, that affordable piece of gear. So in terms of the broader company, I think they are brilliant. And I think they're doing in the UK what shit has done in the USA, but probably they're going further in, in different directions in terms of tech and expanding it out. I mean, they, they haven't gone hard on, say, multi-bit as Mike Moffat has. But like you say, they've, you know, they're doing DSD upsampling. So if that's your thing, you want an iFi DAC, not an Yggdrasil. So... I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm all about iFi. I think they're brilliant in the broader scheme of things. I just, I don't know, lossless Bluetooth. I want it to happen, but it's just the way it's kind of coming about. I don't know, Tujan. <laughs> me neither, because I'm not a Bluetooth user. So to me, it's academic. All right, Sujan, what's next? I'm going to start with a question to you. Okay. Oh, Have God. you much experience, if any, with a tube amps or preamps and more to the point, rolling tubes? Not for years. I did have the Prima Luna here earlier this year. Yeah, I was kind of 50-50 on it. Years ago, I had a K-in that I rolled the tubes in because I think you could switch it between KT88 and EL34. But that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything special. It was, a, you know, a thousand euro amp. It was nice, but yeah. The point I wanted to make is that when you have a solid state anything, a DAC, mm -hmm. a preamp, an integrator, an amplifier, your output devices, they are what they are. And most of the time, we neither know nor are interested to know what kind of a transistor is it. Is mm -hmm. it a MOSFET? Is it a bipolar? Is it a sunken? Is it a Toshiba? Is it a semi-on? Is it an exicon? Who cares? Mm -hmm. When you go to tubes, everybody gets really very specific. Is it a KT88? Is it a 6550? Is it a 5881? Is it a KT90? KT150? <laughs> right. right. But the fun thing is that with a lot of amplifiers, you can do what they call tube rolling. You mm -hmm. can actually change the sound by going from an EL34 to a KT88. Yes. And if it's a single-ended amp, you might be able to do a 2A3 or a 300B or a 45. So you can not just swap tube types, but then within the particular tube family, let's call it a 300B, you might try out a Western Electric from America or a Takatsuki from Japan or an Elrog from Germany or a JJ from Slovakia or an EAT from the Czech Republic. And all those 300 Bs, even though they are supposedly the same family and type, they will sound different. Mm -hmm. So if you own a tube amplifier or preamplifier or DAC, because you can also do it with small signal tubes, you have this option of sort of flavoring the sound to your liking or just to explore different flavors, which you do mm -hmm. not have with solid state. Unless <laughs> you have... Uh, a class D amplifier, for example, from Nord Acoustics in the UK, who mm. package UCD Hypex, they package Encore, they package Purify, Ice Power, and Star Crimson, which are all OEM class D boards with a mm -hmm. switch mode power supply. But then they put their own input buffer in front of that OEM module. And the input buffer very often is a, is a socketed 
discrete op amp. And by okay. popping out the op amp and putting another one in there, you do what the tube rollers do. You change the sound of the following output stage. So up until now, transistor lovers, even though very, very limited, had an option to do a little bit of transistor rolling, but never on the output stage, always mm. on what comes before. Okay. Until now, which gets us to AGD, which today does not stand for Audio Group Denmark, but it stands for Alberto Guerra Design. Mm -hmm. Alberto Guerra is an Italian expat who now lives in the Los Angeles basin. And he was working for a company that developed the GANFET technology. And GANFETs oh, okay. were designed for very, very high speed switching, which is, of course, what happens in Class D amplifiers, where the output devices switch very, very quickly. Hmm. And current technology, silicone-based transistors have a limit in how fast they can switch and when they start to distort. And these GANFETs were designed to switch really, really fast without distortion. So he developed his own Class D amplifiers based on GANFET technology, just like Merrill Audio, hmm. and for a lot of money. We are talking five figures. The thing that he did different is that he packaged his output stage in what looks like a tube. Mm -hmm. And the tube sits on top, proud on the amplifier with regular tube pins. So you can pull it out and you, could, you can put another one in. So it behaves exactly like a tube. Yes, except it's not a tube. And it only right. works in his amplifiers. There's a complete right. class D output stage inside the gotcha. tube on a circuit mm -hmm. board that has two sides. Okay. And when he first came out, people made fun of him. Or they said, this is cheating, because it looks like a tube amp, but it really is not. Or you just mm. did it for the looks, and it's basically a gimmick. And what everybody except him, of course, forgot is that he had now designed a modular output stage. So mm -hmm. as technology progressed and as he learned more, he could sell you a new set of tubes, a new output stage with better performance specs. So you oh, would keep the amplifier, okay. you would keep the yes. chassis, you would keep the power supply, and all mm -hmm. you would do is pop in a new, what he calls the GAN tube. Mm -hmm. And he just came out with the third generation of what he calls his GAN tube KT88. It still switches at a very high 800 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. The output power is 250 watts into four ohms in his more powerful monoblock because that has mm. a bigger power supply. And then he has a really, really small monoblock. It's very, very cute. In that, it will make 200 watts into four ohms. And so I just wanted to bring this to our viewers' attention, is that when you think transistors and the output stage is what it is, not necessarily. With this one particular company, the output stage is what you make it by deciding which of, I believe, now three different available GAN tubes mm -hmm. you stick into your amplifier. And now with this latest generation, he also claims it's a redesigned output filter and it's a redesigned switching stage or pulse width modulation stage. And he has faster rise times, he has lower distortion, and the noise flow is now minus 140 dB. Wow, okay, that's pretty impressive. And usually we get those kind of noise figures only with digital. By the mm -hmm. time we get to amplifiers, they have a hard time sometimes even reaching 100 dB of noise flow. If it's a two band, it may only be mm. 80 dB. Yes. How much? Are these new GAN tubes? $1,500 a pair. But which, you have to which, buy Which sounds like the a lot. Yeah. Okay. But that's probably what a pair of Western Electric 300B will cost you. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you're keeping the amplifier that you've already spent 8,000 or 15,000 euros for, and you just plug it in your output stage. I haven't heard this particular one. I've heard the mm. previous one. And I'm just very excited that somebody's taking technology and he allows the end user uh, to retain their investment in the amplifier while taking the performance further. And you don't even have to send it back. There's no soldering required. You don't even have to use a screwdriver. You just mm -hmm. literally plug one thing out and you pop another one in. AGD production, and this is called the Gantube KT88 Mark III.
That's all I got. So would you need to buy the sort of the base unit yeah. into which you drop these tubes? So yes. if I wanted to buy the whole thing, stereo amplifier, what, what am I looking at? Now you're catching me with my pants down, <laughs> kind of, because I haven't looked into this in a while. Uh, but Esther, roughly, I mean, we just I need think to he, I, I think he might start at 8,000 for a pair of small monoblocks that put out 200 watts into four ohm. Okay. And by the time you go to his big flagship ones, they might be 15 or 18,000 euros right. for 250 watt into eight into four ohm class D monoblocks that looked like, you know, he's Italian. So like a lot of Italians, he okay. has visual flair and style. They look mm. really classy. They have sort of like a truncated plexiglass top that is mm -hmm. lit from below in orange. And then there's this one tube sticking out and the whole thing is machined from solid aluminum. Mm -hmm. So you don't see any screws, no seams, no nothing. It's a really tasty look. So they look like tube amplifiers, but they're not. Okay, so Jan, the last topic on this agenda today is the, the headphone two. And I guess I take a, an extra interest in this line of products, well, kind of, we'll come to this in a minute, because they're like a 15-minute bike ride for me, the Head Factory. Now, people might know Head as manufacturers of studio monitors. They're very popular with the bedroom bangers, the numerous bedroom bangers that kind of, I guess, teach themselves to DJ or produce music here in Berlin or all around the world as well, obviously. But they're very popular here. And then I think, was it three years ago or four years ago, Head decided to introduce a headphone. And what they did is they adapted the tech that they use in the tweeter of their studio monitors mm -hmm. into a headphone. And that tweeter is an, what's called an AMT driver. So it's basically a air motion transformer. That's what it's called. That's its full name. And you see these a lot nowadays because the patent has run out. But it was originally developed by a chap called Oscar Heil. And then Klaus Heinz, who is the or was, sorry, the big cheese at head. I hope he doesn't hear me say this because he might get annoyed. But um, he was, I guess, a protege of, of Oscar Hiles for a while and then took the tech further. And and so this is, I think, I think I heard Freddie, his son, who is now in charge of the company, say that Klaus Heinz did a spell at ELAC. And that's possibly why they have that Jet 2 tweeter in their products. I don't know this, and if I've got that wrong, I'm really sorry. But anyway, so this AMT has now been put into a headphone. Now, when Head first did it for the first iteration of the headphone, the result was this big, honking, great pair of ear cups that weighed, I think, 750 grams. Or so, sorry, 718 grams. So that's that's probably the heaviest headphone that I've ever heard of. And it's also why I said no to a review pair. I think that's why you said no to a review pair as well. So Correct. Even though I like the guys at Head and because they're so close, it would be easy to organize the logistics of all this anyway. So I just said, like, I'm really sorry. I did go to the factory. I did make a video about the introduction and that's on my YouTube channel. I'll put a link in the show notes below. Actually, while I think of it, Sujan, people should know that if they go beneath the YouTube window on a on a computer or a phone, they will find the show notes. They need to find the little more button. And if you can find the comment section to leave a comment, you can definitely find the show notes in the description box. Because a lot of people say, well, I'm watching on a TV, but they're saying so in a comment. So I'm thinking, but you found the comment section, so you must be able to find the description box. This is an online, ongoing sort of battle I seem to have with my audience. And like, I'll put all extra information in the, in the description box and still people ask questions that are answered in those links. I do that because I don't want to be repeating myself over and over, even though I'm doing that about the description box. Anyway, now we've got the headphone two, and it still uses an AMT driver. It's been re-engineered structurally, headband-wise, ear cup-wise, to be lighter. I've got to look at the weight. It's on my notes. It Five, now weighs 550, 550. Mm -hmm. 550 grams, right? <laughs> Which might sound like a lot. It is. I guess it's sort of is it Odyssey territory? I think it is Odyssey mm -hmm. territory. But I I went and had a listen at the factory, the head factory last week, and they didn't feel overly bulky to me. I mean, yes, I know I'm always aware I was wearing a big 
headphone and there's no way in the world I would ever wear them out in the street, not just because they're open back, but because they are the ultimate Cyberman headphone. But I don't mind that when I'm listening at home because no one can see me looking like a complete dork. I do have my limit though. The the JPS Labs Abyss, whatever they're called. No, I'm sorry. The Abyss. That's just it's it's yeah. That is into the Abyss for me. But I, <laughs> I don't want to go into that too much. I kind of I can always kind of yeah. Anyway, whatever. So th- this headphone too. What's interesting about it is it's the first headphone that I know of, Sajan, and maybe you've seen another one. I don't know that has adjustable clamping force, mm-hmm. side clamping force. Mm-hmm. It's done with straps and little eyelets and hooks it's not the most sophisticated system but it's it gets the job done and i think once you've set it for your own preference you've set it you never touch it again right and it's the same with the 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 uh the the height adjustment thank you the height adjustment (laughs) i don't know what i'm saying the length of it yeah the height adjustment is done on the other side the same kind of system again a little bit agricultural but it works and once you've done it you never touch it again so i was you know pretty happy with them on my head i guess first impressions i would say there isn't a lot of sub bass so if you love sub bass it's not the headphone for you i don't crave a lot of sub bass and i think it's because i've spent many years listening to stand mount loudspeakers so the sub bass for me is a, is a bit of a novelty when i put in a, a subwoofer so i i guess i'm a more I, i'm personally more forgiving of a shortcoming in sub bass I also think that the the sort of upper to mid bass is quite lean. And again, I like that. I, I don't like this sort of mid bass hump that makes things sound woody and rich. Not necessarily a fan apart from with certain music. So if it's a really kind of thin guitar, punky kind of record, then that's fine. But I, I, I guess I did know a fair amount of insight from that sort of yeah, that some maybe lower mids. I couldn't. I can't remember whether it was lower mids or upper mids. I should have taken notes. I didn't. I'm really sorry. Um, but it was just it was 25 degrees last week. One day, and I thought I'm going to take a nice little bike ride over to Head Audio and go and listen to the headphone too. But I, I did say to them like I'd love to get a pair to kind of have a, a closer listen, and then maybe down the line, Srijan, because you're going to get a pair as well. I think mm-hmm. we can talk about them in this format as a sort of review format rather than just talking about them as a as a news item. Now um, I have a question for you because I know mm-hmm. you were at the factory and you had yes. sort of a chance to ask on my behalf. I did. I've always wondered why the AMT design, which is like an accordion, yes. a driver that's pleated like an accordion. So instead of yes. pushing air back and forth, it squeezes the air and then yes. sucks it back in. Mm-hmm. And I've heard claims from four to one up to five and a half to one uh, ratio between mm. the surface of the diaphragm and the amount of air that it pushed, that it squeezes out or moves. Because mm. with a normal, let's say, one inch tweeter, it's a one to one ratio. You see mm-hmm. the size of the of the device and the amount of air that it can move. Right. I've always wondered how come the AMT principle only lends itself to tweeters. Mm. If we look at Mark and Daniel in China, they have taken it down to 800 hertz. And I believe the latest generation, they take their tweeter slash upper mid-range down to 600 hertz. Mm. But then they must cross it out really steeply. Mm -hmm. But why doesn't the technology lend itself to a mid-range and particularly not a base unit? So I did ask Dimitri, who's the kind of in charge of some of the, well, a lot of the technical aspects of this headphone. Um, He said that so in terms of the headphone, the lower frequencies generally sit in the in the middle of the driver with where the folds are deeper front to back. And I guess I don't know whether you call it the pitch or the yaw or the, the opening is probably a little bit wider so they can move more air from the middle. I'm generalizing here. So I asked him why, you know, could this be extrapolated to lower frequencies? He said, well, yeah, but then you'd have to have a, you know, a deeper fold maybe a wider fold, but the bigger problem is your magnet because you need a magnet to run along where well, it goes this way, doesn't it? It goes vertically, it squeezes, right? So do you need a magnet for basically the length of the height of the driver? And so if you, if you want to go 
further down in frequency, you're going to need a, a much stronger magnet, which in a headphone is a no-no, especially from this, this point of view. But if, even in a speaker, you're going to be talking about a mega magnet, like something that's just insane. Okay. So he said it wasn't really possible from that point. I also asked Peter Como, who develops the Wharfdale loudspeakers and just done the Aura range, which has an AMT mm -hmm. driver as a tweeter. And he said, yeah, you can, you can do it, but it ends up resulting in fairly unusual looking loudspeakers when you see like an AMT driver that might be six or seven inches tall. He sent me a photo and I was like, yeah, that looks pretty wacky. So I don't know whether it's possible to get the entire frequency range of a speaker. I just think the magnet would be too large from what Dimitri says, but I think head of just about squeezed it into a headphone. Now I should interject something mm. just so that we didn't skip over an important point. And that is mm. that traditional AMT tweeters the folds are all exactly the same. Yes, sorry. I and in order that. to yeah, make yeah. that technology applicable to full range in a headphone where the drivers mm -hmm. are still very, very close to the ear, mm -hmm. our head had to redesign that, that evenness and they have now what they call variable velocity yes. transform. So certain folds are deeper and yes. wider and others are narrower. And that particular ratio of how many big ones and how many little ones and how are they sequenced? That seems to be based on their own internal R&D and probably explains why, in headphones at least, nobody else has a full range AMT headphone. There's a company in the UK called Obravo, mm -hmm. but they're doing a hybrid. They're right. using an AMT tweeter and then they marry it to a dynamic mid woofer. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't really count as if you just have one driver that covers the entire frequency. Mm. So I think the grandfather for electrostatic headphones in the commercial sector was stacks in mm -hmm. Japan. Absolutely, yes. And then I think for planar magnetics, as far as we can think back, not like three or four generations, the ones that repopularized it, I think, were Odyssey. Yes. And then with ribbon ear speakers, it was well requisite. Mm -hmm. And I think now with AMT headphones, the grandfather of the genre, because they were first, would have to be head in Berlin. And I would, think, yeah, yeah. I would think that in a few years, if this headphone is successful on Sonics, we'll probably see other people reverse engineer it because the patent is open. Like we said, it has expired, mm -hmm. the Oscar Heil mm -hmm. patent. Yes. And today you can get AMT drivers from Dayton to Dynavox, Mark and Daniel, Monaco, Mundorf, SB Acoustics, you can buy them off the shelf, just yeah. like you buy, you know, an, a, a dynamic driver. So I did ask Freddie Knopp, you know, the guy, he's basically the CEO or the, the man in charge of Headnell, Klaus Heinz's son. And he was saying that, you know, it's not just a single fold attacks a certain range of frequencies. Although Dimitri said he kind of does that. But he says because the whole thing is moving. There's also a, you know, a collective or collaborative movement of the, of the driver as it squeezes in and out. So one fold might, yes, hit a certain frequency range, but if it's next to a bunch of other folds, they might combine to hit, a, I guess, a lower frequency, right? So you can't just go, okay, this fold does th this very narrow frequency band and this one does this one, because there's, a, there's a, I think from what he said, there's a sort of a, a summing effect mm -hmm. of their collective movement or collective squeeze. So... I don't know how easy this is going to be to reverse engineer. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe it's just my my dumbassness that prevents me from understanding how that's going to be possible. Maybe it's super easy. I don't know. But I, I really want them to do well with this because they did battle some, I think, justifiable tough criticism for the weight of the first one. And they got through it and they've re-engineered a second one. And Cameron, who I messaged about the 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 homage of headphones, he's a big fan. And in fact, He's the one that said, look, John, you need to go and have a listen to these. They're not like the first ones. They are much more comfortable on the head. The The adjustable clamping force is really cool. So, I, you know, I, I took the opportunity. So I'm going to get a pair eventually. So, yeah, I think they're great. I'm really curious because one of my favorite headphones are the RAL, the ribbons. Mm -hmm. Yes, you love and them. And I right? like them so much because they basically... They have no magnet in front of them. The magnet are mm. on the on the top and the bottom of the of the aluminum ribbon. Mm -hmm. The ribbon itself is the voice is the uh, conductive element, so it doesn't mm. have to have a voice call attached to it. 
And so it can't store any energy. So it is super fast and super clean. And the treble is more open than anything I've ever heard. Mm. And so in my mind, I'm looking at the AMT principle and the fact that it has this four to one advantage over dynamic drivers. And it's a velocity converter. It's not a pressure generator. It's a completely different principle of moving sound. So I'm expecting that particularly the transients should be fast. And I would also expect it to be very dynamic. And that sometimes is, I have noticed this with speakers where with AMT tweeters married mm. to, you know, dynamic midwoofers, that sometimes they sound bright, but they don't sound bright in the frequency domain when you play something that is very mellow. Mm. They sound bright because the tweeter is more dynamic. So when things in the treble spike, like a hit on a cymbal, or like some piccolo flute in a, in a Cuban orchestra that gets really, really high and really, really sharp because the player has to blow the air really, really fast, mm. that peaks higher than like a little one-inch dome tweeter can. And so I, I always thought that AMT-tweeted speakers have a challenge to integrate the tweeter with like more ordinary or normal drivers. And so the idea that now we have a transducer that doesn't have to bother crossing over to any different type of driver, but they can apply the AMT principle to the entire bandwidth, maybe mm. only about 40 hertz, and then the sub-octave yeah. rolls off. Okay, no problem there. I'm just very curious what that will sound like, whether it will have a similar speed and sort of snappiness and, and, and crispness in a good way that the ribbons do. I have no idea. I've never heard an AMT headphone. So having had the AMT monitors here and noticing how smooth that AMT driver is in a pair of speakers, that does translate to the headphone very nicely. So you don't get, you know, you get that sort of, um, that tizziness from some dome tweeters. I don't know whether it's the breakup mode or some kind of resonance misbehaving, but they can sound just a bit annoying. And it's not, it's just a certain frequency range. You're like, what is, but there's something bugging me here, but I can't put my finger on it. Mm -hmm. And that you could, it just doesn't exist with this, this driver. And I'm not saying all dome tweeters sound like that, but some of them do. I'm not going to mention any names because the last time I did, I got a stroppy note from the manufacturer, but I did mention the F word with Dimitri who develops his headphone. And I'm talking about fast. And he said to me, I don't think you can, I don't think the, the word fast is, necessarily the right word what he's talking about he said to me was like he said i think what it is is just a very good sense of attack and then a strong sense of decay but all that there's no sort of overhang mm -hmm. on the driver so it, you can hear it naturally without in some cases i guess the overhang might be audibly pleasurable i don't know it might be like a, a certain kind of distortion that we find enjoyable i'm not sure but he says it's not there so to your point, he says, this is why a lot of people describe the AMT sound as being fast. But he said, like, it's not really that. It's just, it's still with attack and decay, which I know that's splitting hairs. And, you know, they, they, they kind of, what's the word? One hand washes the other in terms of those two ter bits of terminology. But I thought it was an interesting distinction. He made it far more eloquently than I just did. This is the problem when you try and explain somebody else's explanations. It's quite, it's quite a challenge. But anyway, yeah, so fast, yeah, maybe. But I think it's, there's more to it than that. We but should, we'll, have to, we'll have to see when we get them, right? We should still mention the price, right? It's yes, a, a 2,000 yeah. euro headphone. 2,000 euros, 2,000 US dollars, 1,700 British pounds. So maybe 10 years ago, a 1,000 euro headphone was sort of as much money as you could spend. Yes. And then it <laughs> went to two and 3,000. And today, yeah. I think there's headphones that sell, well, the Sennheiser accepted, because I don't even know how many zeros that has. There's a, the, you know. The, the HE1? Yeah, the one with the tube amplifier. With, I think yeah, I think that's eighty-two thousand, something like that. But that's the whole the whole well, yeah, system. That's crazy. Yeah. But yeah. I think <laughs> below the complete craziness, I think we are now sort of peaking at about six to eight thousand mm -hmm. euros for a pair of like super high-end headphones. So compared to that, two thousand at two thousand and twenty-three is sort of entry-level upper end. It's no longer the complete 
insane peak that it was 10 no. years ago. I did say to the, to the, I was talking to just guys, so I'll have to say guys, the, the chaps at head, that I don't think they could ever pull off a more expensive headphone because they are seen more as a sort of men of the people, makers of active studio monitors. Mm -hmm. So if they, if they did all of that, sort of affordable active studio monitors and then pivoted to like, oh, by the way, we look after audio files with a 4,000 euro headphone, there'd just be some kind of mismatch there. Mm -hmm. So I think 2,000 euros is probably as much as they can get away with in their current market position. I think it's palatable for most high-end headphone enthusiasts, but if all you can afford is a 400 euro pair of Sony noise cancellers, and I'm not judging you if that's just you, then you're going to look at that and go, this is insane money for a headphone. And I know that there will, will be people watching this, Rajan, who think that, and that's okay. But what those people have to understand is that if there wasn't a market for this, they wouldn't have spent two years developing it and then selling it into the market because there definitely is a market for this. There are definitely people who can afford to spend two grand on a headphone and then maybe a grand on a headphone amplifier. I actually should point out that I listened to them with an RME ADI2 DAC FS, which I have, but it's in, it's in Portugal. So I might even get the headphone sent there so I can, I can sort of replicate that setup. And the RME is there. not crazy money either, is it? What is it like 800 or 1200? No, it's a bit more. It's about 11 or 12. I think, yeah, maybe it went up a couple of years ago. I'm not sure, but it's, it's a very popular unit. It's a very um, good all rounder. It's got inbuilt EQ. It does all sorts of different outputs, but it is um, op amp based. It's not like a discrete mm -hmm. headphone amp. Not that I'm not criticizing it for that. I'm just saying that's what it is. I really like it actually, but I've only really, I've used it more as a DAC than a headphone amp. So maybe I need to kind of give it another go in a different area of listening. I think I'm all fresh out of questions. Me too. And I think I'm all fresh out of um, things to say about these news items, Shujan. So thank you very much for your time. And we'll hopefully do this again in another couple of weeks. I'm all for it. Thanks, Don.